Welcome to Seeing Sound. In this podcast, Playtronica and Lost and Sound take you on a journey between what we see and what we hear. Presented by me, Paul Hanford. Ah, the cinema, or in German, Kino. I'm in Neukölln in West Berlin. Bowie once wrote a song about this part of the city. It's a very lively, multicultural part of the place, home to a large Turkish community. And in more recent years, a lot of creative people from all over the world have moved here. It's the kind of place where you're never that far away from someone in a black beady cap serving you a flat white coffee. But today, I'm on the corner of Wildenbuchstraße and Weserstraße to go to the cinema. Today, we're all about films. Over this five-part series, we'll be meeting a bunch of musicians, a DJ or two, at least a couple of filmmakers, a dancer, artists, AI experts, and more who share with us when they've seen sound. And to start off with, today we'll be hearing from two artists. One, a musician who loves film, and the other is a filmmaker who loves music. So that's why we're at the Wolf Kino in Neukölln. And on my way in, I met the Wolf's owner, Verena von Stackelberg, who told me a little bit about the cinema. Japanese and Asian cuisine inspired. Great. And this is green too. Okay. Uh, I just have to find the switch. Oh, so lovely. This was actually two rooms. Like the whole place was a brothel before mm. we moved in. And um, all the, the two screens are basically room-in-room room constructions mm. so that none of the cinema screen walls touch the walls of the building. And it's all based, like the, the foundation, the floor is on foam. Yeah. So that nothing travels through to the building. And when we built Wolf, this was the most complicated and nerve-wracking part of the construction to make sure no sound travels into the rest of the building. <laughs> it's and amazing that the way that the sound uh, for showing films is, has, has to be considered. So much. So one thing is, of course, that we don't disturb the neighbors and we can continue our business because one screw that would touch the physical wall of the building would mean that sound can travel. Mm -hmm. But once the room and room construction is built, you can't find that one screw. Yeah. So it was really like we, we, we kept coming in in the middle of the night, like with torches going between the two walls and looking if we can find any, any, any uh, potential transmitter. So Verena left me in the cinema and I settled in to get comfy. Oh, so this is fantastic. I've got the whole screening room to myself. I've got a beer, I've got my popcorn, and I'm going to get ready to listen to the first part of this double bill where we zoom all the way over to Japan to speak with the legendary artist Jim O'Rourke. I was curious to chat with him about the way he has collaborated with filmmakers in the past and his interest in film. He's scored works for Werner Herzog and Harmony Corrine, amongst others. Not only that, but he named four of his albums after films made by the British director, Nicholas Roeg. 
This is what happened when we had a chat. Hi, how are you doing? Um, I'm good. It's It's been snowing in Berlin for about a week. Um, how are you doing? Oh, goodness. Oh, it's uh, it's actually not that bad here at all. Well, I I don't I I live up in the mountains, so mm. <laughs> I live I live uh, about uh, fourteen hundred meters up. It's not near Mount Fuji, but I can see it out my window. So it's <laughs> I'm about actually about an hour away from Mount Fuji, really. But it's like it's that part of the of japan where it basically turns into mountains like between tokyo and uh, nagoya kyoto and all that the kind of mountain i guess it's the version it's the the alps of japan i had my first computer oh man i think when i was 12 Right. I worked. I yeah. I worked at a uh, a potentiometer. Uh, Twelve or thirteen. Probably thirteen. I worked at a potentiometer factory after school every day, uh, changing acid and and uh, cleaning off the uh, uh, dyeing tool machines to pay for a Texas Instrument computer. Wow, that sounds that sounds quite a kind of high risk way for a thirteen year old to be um, saving up for a computer. Well, you know, I, you know, my, my, my good, good Irish immigrant parents, you know, they, 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 they had to work from when they were seven. So, you know, uh, <laughs> waiting until you're 13 to work was probably like, I probably seemed like a slouch to them. So. <laughs> I first came to your work with Eureka, basically. That was the first I remember getting when it came out and, um, and what was the idea about releasing a series of albums named after Nicholas Rorick films? I didn't make a decision to to make a, a series of records. I mean, I probably just wanted there to be a through line that connected them. I mean, it would obviously they're connected because those are the only records that I've done that are like that. But I wanted to be a very specific, like, th- through line between them to the show that they are connected. And you should also go back to go, you know, it isn't just one is coming after the other, that they're all part of one thing. Mm. The last one of that group I named The Visitor because that's actually the name of the record that the character makes at the end of his journey in the uh, Man Who Fell to Earth. So, I mean, it ends there. So it kind of purposely used, you know, the sort of Nicholas Rogue connection to, like, put a punctuation point on it as well. <laughs> and I like the fact that, you know, that the first three are all named specifically after, you know, the, named, the names of films. And then the oh, that's right. Bad, time, bad timing yeah. came first, not Eureka. Bad timing. Right, 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 right. right. Mm. Yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah, bad timing. Right, which was sort of, sort of, I, kind of like a, something to amuse myself because I didn't think I, ha- you know, it's like my finger picking was a bit uh, uh, non. I I, t- I tended to not stick with a, a a strict tempo, which I think is a good thing. But mm. uh, some someone's told me I had bad timing. 
<laughs> when you've done film work as well yourself, say, say for example with Werner Herzog, how, how did that collaboration come about? Well, that was because of Henry Kaiser, who was the uh, music director for the for the score. And Henry's uh, was is uh, well, he was one of my heroes when I was growing up, and then became kind of my my, my mentor mm -hmm. in in the in the like in 1990 when I met him at. Uh, Derek Bailey's company week and he sort of took me I mean I was I think 21 or 22 then and that in that sort of world of improvised music then there wasn't really a lot of people my age involved but Henry was in charge of he had done uh, maybe one or two of Mr. Herzog's films before but he Mr. I forget if it was Mr. Herzog's idea or Henry's idea to have Richard Thompson do the music for Grizzly Man. Mm. And uh, and basically they just needed they needed a bass player, a drummer and then like a multi-instrumentalist. And it was, you know, obviously very low budget. And and Henry uh, got you know people that he used in the Bay Area. And but then Henry thought, oh, if if I if I tell Jim to come out here and we'll use the money that the, the 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 fee which was you know very small because it was a small film that'll pay for his plane ticket to come out here and he'll probably do it for free <laughs> which <laughs> what was henry was thinking so henry just called me up and said you know um you know do you want to play on this hurt sock soundtrack yeah. <laughs> and i was just like just tell me when and where <laughs> so yeah i just went out there and yeah. then and then during it, during there was a Hammond organ there with a Leslie, and uh, during lunch breaks or dinner breaks or whatever, I decided to instead just take opportunity to play the Hammond because you know you know it's not something you get oh, you know, a chance to very often. And yeah. the first or second time I was doing it, Herzog runs in from the break room going, "Stop recording." <laughs> <laughs> and and that ended up he ended up using that as the soundtrack for his next movie <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah. he said oh is this, this is he was like this is no good for this movie but it's perfect for the next one <laughs> wow i love that i love I, lo I, lo I and you kind of always get that sense because there's that moment in grizzly bear as well where he's talking about like he's always kind of capturing something that is already like something else, you know, like he's yeah. filming something and then something else kind of steps in and, and stuff like that. And I, I love that, that your music sort of became part of that, that story. of Yeah. Herzog. Yeah. And on the same sessions, I remember Henry is also a, like one of the top uh, underwater photographers for uh, Arctic regions, uh, like Mercurdo, I think the place is called. He's been going up there as part of the science community for like 20 years. So he, at the same sessions, he was showing Mr. Herzog footage he had shot underneath the North Pole uh, a few months earlier. And Herzog, while he's watching, he's like, he, I just got footage of, uh, of private 16 millimeter film shot inside one of the sp spaceships from the 70s from one of the astronauts. Wow. And on the spot... Herzog decided he was going to take Henry's footage and the astronauts' footage and make a film, and that became Wild Blue Yonder, mm. which might have been the film that he used the music on, the, the the organ music, 
Was there was a lot of improvisation involved in that soundtrack? Not, I mean, a bit. I mean, Mr. Herzog would like kind of like talk, you know, which mm. was, of course, a pleasure to listen to, you know, <laughs> and give sort of not musical ideas, but just talk about like what was happening in the scene. And and then basically Mr. Thompson would 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 and and him talking to Henry, they would sort of uh, put together and you know there was there was improvisation in the sense that nobody's part was written down mm. and uh, but you know Mr. Thompson was like the guide. When when you're actually working with film, I think to a lot of people that don't know really what goes into film scoring, myself included here, um, we have this kind of idea of the composer, the musicians working against. Um, a screen showing what's going on, you know, might be a very naive well, assumption I mean, to make. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that. I mean, now it's, of course, on a computer screen and there's like a little window, you know, in your upper right corner, you know, showing the, the, the stuff. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a fair, you know, it, it's a fair way to think of how it's done. I mean, um, I've never worked on a film where it was really a film score, you know, I've, I've never worked mm. on a film big enough where it's actually, you know, like, you know, spending time to write the score and then recording the score to picture and all that stuff. I mean, all the films that I've worked on have been extremely small budget. So it's basically me recording all the parts myself at home in the pro tools with the picture. And also because they're very small films, you know, it's, usually a very small period of time. And especially with Japanese films, the music is the last thing they do. Uh, so you usually have a week to do the entire film. After listening to Jim O'Rourke share a eureka moment or two, I have just enough time to stretch my legs out of these cinema seats before the double bill continues. Oh, there's Verena again. I think I'm just going to ask her about these seats. They're so nice. The lights here right now, but the magic of the lighting is so important, and that you have like a, the main focus has to be the white screen, mm. and the rest of the light should be just. Uh, also um, swallowed up by the by the black walls. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if it would all be black, it wouldn't be magical anymore. So we have these red velvet seats. Well, I, thi I think people always associate cinemas with red velvet seats. Yeah. And we were really lucky because these were given to us by, um, by a cinema that went for luxury seating and they heard that we're just about to start our crowdfunding campaign to launch Wolf. And they donated like 130 seats to us. And the nice thing is that you see it's all Dadaistic, like number 20 is next yeah. to number three. And these are made in the 70s, so they have a different quality than the new cinema seats that you know now. I think this is quite apt because uh, the director that... Um the interview was is, is all about Berberian Sound Studio, okay. which is kind of just all about cinema and sound and set in the 70s as well and using all of these kind of like deep red colours like that. It's it's really fascinating connection. Yeah, it really fits to yeah. the Strickland somehow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, so, so Ten years ago, Berberian Sound Studio came out, which is set in the world of 70s Italian horror cinema. 
it's a film where sound and vision match like no other. I had a chat with the brainchild of this film, Peter Strickland, a director who is also a musician, whose oeuvre of cinematic works always feel like they're made by someone who really operates in a musical way. I love his films like Catalin Varga and In Fabric. They always seem to feel like they're made by someone who has like a natural musical groove. Were you a musician when you were growing up? What, 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 how, was it, how was your upbringing involved with like becoming a filmmaker and how did music kind of work in relationship with that? I would never call myself a musician, even though I was involved in various bands. Film came first. That was always the thing. I, I was a big fan of music I mean, my, my whole life. I mean, I loved pop music. I loved, and later on, I really got into more um, wayward stuff. But film came first at the age of 16. I went seeing A Razorhead at the Scala Cinema in 1990. And then my musical epiphany was almost two years later, I saw My Bloody Valentine at Reading University in, in late 1991. And that was extraordinary for me. Just, um, just these very shy people who shuffled on stage, didn't move at all apart from the bassist. Didn't say a word, not even a hello or goodbye. <laughs> you just couldn't equate the noise with the people. And it wasn't this kind of masculine noise. I wouldn't call it feminine either. It was just this kind of blissful submission that I completely, I just loved submitting to <clears throat> this noise. Uh, it was very, I don't know, it just kind of changed a lot in me, um, how I thought about making film and um what i want to do to an audience in terms of how i how, how i want to be treated as, as a someone in, in in the audience i think it just opened a door so i did a short film in 1995 it came out in 96 and this is when you were um working with film it's just so expensive so i just couldn't afford to do something else so in between it was, it's quite a long in between i think it was like at least six years I could just do something with music which felt related to film because we were making soundscapes and we were editing the same way you edit with film and so on. It was very much an editing-based kind of music, recording sounds and layering them and juxtaposing them and chopping them up. Yeah, so I think when, when I made Kotlin Varga, when we did the sound mix, we were just using that way of working that I got used to from this band I was in. Once you put that way of working to images, then it activates people's imagination. If you have mm. it on record, most people ignore it. And I think that was the trigger for Barbarian Sound Studio. And with Barbarian as well, what was it that made you... Because it seems to me it's like, of all the films I've seen, it's, it's one that seems to be... have such a direct relationship with sound. It's almost like the sound is a character in the film. What made you decide to kind of explore sound as as a film in in barbarian sound studio i mean there are many reasons for it you know one was this kind of exercise in can i make a dark film without any blood without any actual murder can i do it purely with with, with, with sound a lot of it also just came from i think more it was more like a, it sounds a bit pretentious but like 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 a a meditation on sound and its power to disrupt to deceive to disorientate and i think the association of sound was very very important to me so um 
there's this Eddie Prever book, which I never read actually, but the, the title was extraordinary. So Eddie Prever from AMM, and I think the title was um, No Sound is Innocent, which really kind of activated this idea of, you know, our band, we all, we were making sounds from the kitchen, you know, chopping vegetables, and sizzling and cooking. Um, very innocent sounds. You associate them with the domestic sphere. You associate them with a restaurant. You associate them with the promise of a meal. But if you put those sounds in a different context, you're not changing the sound. The sound is exactly the same. You're just changing the association. It enters that um, territory of um, horror and brutality. Um, so yeah, the, the sound of a knife going through a cabbage the corruption of, of sound, but purely because of your imagination, not because of the sound changing. So that was like a starting point for the film, really. OK, time for a quick lesson in film terminology that'll be useful in a second or two, because Peter's about to mention diegetic sound and non-diegetic sound. Everything you hear in a film falls into being one or the other. To put it simply, diegetic sound is everything you hear that takes place within the action, such as voices of characters, sounds made by objects in a story, or instruments played within the space of the screen. Whereas non-diegetic sound comes from outside the action, like voiceover or a film score. Okay, back to the interview. But I, I think the most important rule for the film was everything was diegetic, that um, every single sound you heard was physically locatable. Nothing was abstract. I mean, I think because the structure and the events in the film can be a bit dreamlike, it's very mm. important to anchor it with something very concrete, that every single sound has its place. And then and it was, I think it was a case of perspective then. It was just following the human voice, the voice coming out of the mouth, the voice coming out of speakers or a tannoy or behind glass. And then and it was actually a lot of fun to put together. You know, it was just like a really pleasant jigsaw to do. I think culturally, we kind of have this massive distinction between what we hear and what we see. Well, yeah, I mean, you often hear, uh, you hear a sound outside your window, which mm. could be uh, a sort of yelp of, someone messing around or a yelp of pain and in your head you're doing this kind of arithmetic and you have completely so again it's that same sound which can be incredibly disturbing or just someone you know just slightly tripped over or laughed at something yeah i mean deceit in sound was something quite important for me uh, it completely tricks the mind that um yeah the sound itself is not disturbing it's the association that comes with it or or the illusion that comes with it because it might it might not be anything disturbing and I, I would always argue something like Star Wars is more experimental than a lot of independent art house films because Lucas gave Ben Burke the time and the money to experiment um you know it is an experimental sound not sound not not the John Williams I'm talking about the actual yeah um the, the the process he went through was completely experimental it was all done from the ground up whereas now you can buy adam splett archives all the stuff he recorded with david lynch it's basically 
click of a finger, it's there. You've got that sound. And I think you're missing something. It's a great sound, but mm. you're missing the process of discovery. Ben Burt working out on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, if I take the handbrake off my car at the top of a hill, <laughs> record that, and then slow it down, I'll get a sound of a huge boulder coming onto Indiana Jones or mixing up different animals from the zoo into this kind of collage. Uh, so, I don't know about you, but I enjoyed being back inside the cinema there. Thanks to the Wolf Kino on the corner of Wildenbruchstrasse and Wieserstrasse in Neukölln in West Berlin. I'll see you very, very, very soon for another episode of Seeing Sound. And we'll be back next week when we continue our encounters into what we see and what we hear. Seeing Sound is a Lost and Sound production for Playtronica, written and produced by me, Paul Hanford. Music by Olga Maximova. And thanks in this episode to Jim O'Rourke, Peter Strickland and Verena von Stackelberg at the Wolf Kino in Berlin.